0: This is our third tour about the Mashiach. So there, there was a whole discussion about whether we should continue talking about the topic of Mashiach because we've already kind of covered, I think, a lot of the a lot of the ideas. But Yael had suggested from discussing with some of the other girls, and, um, and maybe it was also her own thoughts, that there might be a couple of points that we could cover that we didn't really touch upon in the, uh, in the previous shiurim, not necessarily revisiting what we discussed last time. Because in the first class, we talked about... Uh, how the Rambam describes Yimot HaMashiach and the process of the Mashiach coming and the Gilula, that he takes a more uh, natural sort of a social uh, movement uh, concept of the Mashiach, more working through the laws of nature, not violating them, and the change really that's going to occur is fundamentally within people. That doesn't mean that there won't be certain miracles. It doesn't mean that there won't be Tchiat HaMitim. Of course there would be, but uh, the process itself of bringing the Mashiach and what will happen in Yemot HaMashiach won't be that, you know, all of a sudden nature doesn't exist and everything is, uh, is a different universe or something like that. It's like an alternate universe. It's not going to be like that according to the Ramban. The Ramban, we talked about in the last time, uh, has a very different view and some of the ladies followed up with me afterwards that, you know, kind of like found it a little bit bizarre or hard to process because it is hard to process because it's it's speaking in a language that is not our typical language because Ramban Views things through first of all the Kabbalah, mainly the Kabbalah of the Ramban, which is uh, an older Kabbalah than uh, than the Kabbalah that's popular today. It's uh, the, the the version of Kabbalah that was a classic uh, classic Kabbalah. So he's speaking from that framework, and he's talking about that. No, it's the opposite of what the Rambam says. In fact, you know, nature is going to change Na- the nature of people, the nature of animals, and uh, and some of the laws of nature are going to change. People are not going to reproduce anymore. They're not going to eat anymore. They're not going to die anymore. They're not going to be born anymore. All of the things that it says are going to happen in Olam Haba. The Ramban takes that to mean Yimot HaMashiach. So he has a, a very, uh, and he argues his position, and, and anybody can uh, read it. I mean, I think that um, it's probably, I'm, I'm 100% sure that it's been translated to English by now. He has a book called To'at Adam, and in that there's a um, there's a, something called Shara Gemul. Shara Gemul is the Ramban where he talks about Olam Haba, Geinom, uh, Yemot HaMashiach, and all of the uh, topics that fascinate everybody. The interesting thing is he basically appended that to his discussion of Hilchot Avelut. He has like a... He's talking about death, basically, and then while he's talking about that, he talks about what happens after you die and also Yemot HaMashiach, and he gets into his dis- disagreements with the, Ram, with the Rambam. The Ramban never uh, really... Uh, expands upon for example the issue of Gil neshamot, Nishamot like the idea of, uh, of reincarnation even though he mentions it in many places and he makes references to it but he never discusses it uh, but he does take issue with the Rambam on Geinom and Olam Abba versus Yomot HaMashiach and so on and, 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 and especially on this issue of whether nature is going to change or not so that's what we talked about last time but, uh, so, so these are things that, again, as, as the Rambam himself says, you know, we don't really know exactly how things are going to turn out because we haven't experienced it yet. We have to wait and see. So uh, we don't have to make a decision about that. In general, the, uh, one of the principles that we have in halacha is that there's no psak halakha about hashkafa. You don't have to have a psak. You don't have to say, okay... What do we hold? Do we hold that the Mashiach is going to be this way? Or we hold the, there's no halakhic ruling about that. It never says in the, in the Talmud, the Rambam actually himself, even though the Rambam formulated the 13 principles of faith, and he, he contributed a lot to our understanding of what a Jew is expected to believe, supposed to believe, and what pro, what is proper emunah, even though he contributed a great deal to that, and he really thought that was very important. He himself says that, like, let's say the rabbis in the Talmud argue about a certain hashkafik issue, not a Halakhic issue, issue of hashkafa. We don't have to have a conclusion about that. We can say, well, we think this way or think that way. You go, different rabbis can have different opinions. Um, and, and they can decide that this, this, uh, uh, this view, uh, are the ten tribes going to come back or the ten tribes are lost? Right? So you have like a machloket in the Mishnah about that. So the Rambam says there's no conclusion. We, we don't make a ruling, oh, this is what it has to be, that they have to come back or don't come back. It's, it's, it's different opinions. It's different ideas. So when it comes to ideas of Mashiach, we don't have to have a conclusion. We say we know that the rabbis had a disagreement about it, different ideas about it. We can, uh, we can decide for ourselves that we feel that a certain way is more reasonable to us or we understand it better and that's how we're gonna think about it. But at the end of the day, how we're gonna think about it doesn't determine what it's gonna be. So uh, it's just, you know, it's our choice how, do, how we decide to think about it. Now, um, let's, let's take up something, uh, two concepts that uh, it was suggested that we uh, maybe touch upon. One is, how is halacha going to change in the Yomot HaMashiach? Is it gonna change? All right, so one of the things that we know we don't have today is we don't have a Sanhedrin and we always blame them for everything, right? They're the scapegoat of Judaism. Oh, why do we have this rule? Oh, because we don't have a sign the dream. We can't change it, right? So we always say that. Why, why, can't, we, why can't we take medicine? We're not supposed to take medicine on Shabbat unless you're very sick. You're not supposed to take medicine on Shabbat, right? Why? Oh, because in the olden days, they used to grind the medicine. Okay, so we don't grind the medicine anymore. Uh, but we can't change it because we don't have a the dream. Why do we have to repeat the Amidah and make the tefillah doubly long every single Shabbat or triply long every Shabbat by having Chazarat Hashatz and repeating Amidah? Oh, because in those days people didn't have a Sidur, so they had to listen to the Chazan. Okay, but now we do have a Sidur, so why do we have to do it? Oh, because we can't change it. Because we don't have the, uh, well, we don't have a, a way to change it. Okay? So there are many things like this and some of the things are even more, uh, even more, uh, impact people's lives even more than that. Like, yeah, to get, throw out another example that doesn't really impact people's lives, let's say uh, not playing musical instruments on Shabbat. I'm not dying to play musical instruments on Shabbat, but like you know, the, the uh, clapping on Shabbat is not—you're not supposed to clap to the beat on Shabbat. That's one of the takanot. That's uh, one of the examples Why? Oh, because you might get an instrument and start playing it. And that, but that's also not prohibited. But you might tune it, or what, you're not allowed to ride on a horse because you might tear a branch off a tree and smack the horse. Nowadays, I'm pretty sure they don't do that. If they need to hit the horse, they probably have. I mean, I never, I'm not a big horse rider. I, I, when I was a kid, I took like horse riding. I don't even, I don't remember when I was little, but I, I, I'm pretty sure we didn't tear branches off, uh, off the tree and smack the horse. And uh, that was already like 40 years ago. We didn't do it even then. So definitely not now. And probably you would get sued and PETA would come after you and you'd have all kinds of problems. So for sure they don't do that. So, why do we have to follow this? Or you can't go and swim in the ocean on Shabbat. You're, you know, Saradim, we're allowed to go to a pulpit. Uh, that's a whole other issue. But to go to the ocean, you're not allowed. Why not? Oh, because you might make a raft. Who makes a raft out of the seaweed? Right? Nobody makes a raft out of the seaweed on the thing today. Nobody does that. Right? So, we laugh at it. Oh, ha ha ha, why would we do that? Sorry. Chachamim made the so we have to follow it. So, you have a many, uh, there are many, many examples of gzerat Rabbanan. Okay? that the rabbis made. And what do we always use as our quote unquote excuse or who do we blame? Oh, well, you know, but uh, another example of this, here's an example that's actually a little meandering, but interesting, okay? Why do we start saying aleinu, in, in America? Okay, in Israel, it's, it's different, but why do, uh, why do you start saying it on like the 5th of December? When, when do you ever have something that's on a, the goes by the English date? Right? And why are you starting on the 5th of December? What's the reason? So the reason was because you have to start saying, 60 days after the new season, the, se- the fall season, okay? The, you know, the uh, uh, autumnal, uh, you know, season begins. When does, when does autumn begin? September 21st, right? So 60 days after that really should be, what? Around, around November 21st, right? Not December 5th. So how did it end up being December 5th? Does anybody know? Very interesting historical thing happened. What is the name of the calendar that you use today? It's called a Gregorian calendar, right? Very good. Somebody's paying attention in some class. Okay? Right. So, Gregorian calendar. Now, what happened was that our the, all of the halakhot were based on not on the Gregorian calendar. Okay? So, the Gregorian calendar was later. And what happened was that the calendar, that basically what they realized was that the calendar that they used up till then, Pope Gregory was the person who fix the calendar to the Gregorian calendar. Now, why did he do that? Because he realized that there are certain inaccuracies in calculation that after one year, they don't make a difference. Let's say you calculate that a year is exactly 365 and a quarter day, which is usually how we calculate it, right? So every four years we have a leap year because we, because every year really is 365 and a quarter day, but we don't have quarter days. So that means that every four years, we're actually missing a day if we don't add a day. That's why you add a day every four years leap year. Okay? Now, but that's not exactly accurate either. Okay? There are other things that happen. So for, so without going into all the details, basically, all right, he fixed the calendar to account for certain issues that were coming up with the calendar before. Okay? Now, now, that calendar, the calendar of the halachic calendar has fallen out of sync with the Gregorian calendar. It's fallen behind. It's fallen behind so much that by the time the halachic solar calendar gets up to November November 21st, the Gregorian calendar that we're using is already up to December 5th. It's fallen behind by like let's say, two weeks, almost, right? That's the reason why. Now, a Sanhedrin today would say, wait a second, what, why are we following an outdated calendar? Why don't we just follow the calendar that's correct? Well, we can't change it because Chachamim, they fixed it and they, they made it that way, we have to follow the calendar, right? So that's why we end up starting B'Rech on a random day of December 5th, okay? At least November 21st would make sense because it's actually 60 days into the season. Doesn't make sense, to December 5th, but, you know, that's the way it is. Now, it, by, by the way, if you've ever heard of, like, uh, it's a similar thing, that there's such a thing as, like, Orthodox Christmas. Have you ever heard of that? Like, the Orthodox Church, they have, like, Christmas on, like, January 5th, okay? Or January, whatever it is, in January, instead of in in December. Forget what actual day it is. But it's the same thing, because they're following the pre-Gregorian calendar, so they don't get, to, they, they're late, they're running late, okay? So we have the same, we have the same, uh... Uh, problem. So that's just an, a random example, but all of these things come from the same cause, which is we don't have a sun injury. When did the when was the last time that halacha was actually fluid and could be changed? It was up to the time that the Talmud was sealed. The Rambam says, "What's the reason for that?" He explains it in the beginning of the Mishneh Torah. What was the reason for that? Reason was that up till the Talmud was sealed, which is around the year five hundred, let's say. Okay. Um. Or so, up until that time, all of the Chachamim of the Jewish people still were one body. They were still one entity. So they so any idea that one rabbi had, the other rabbis heard it, they discussed it, they argued it, they came to a vote, they came to a conclusion, and their authority was accepted by everybody. That was the national body of Chachamim, and nobody argued about it. After the sealing of the Talmud, you had people in North, rabbis in North Africa, and rabbis here, rabbis there, rabbis all over the world, and these rabbis didn't necessarily interact with each other, and these rabbis didn't necessarily get a chance to discuss, and they definitely didn't get a chance to vote on anything. So the rabbi in uh, in a community in, in Turkey that tells his community a certain minhag, and a rabbi in Iran tells a certain minhag, and a rabbi in Iraq institutes a certain thing. They didn't have any influence one upon the other. So that's why how Minhagim started. Minhagim started when the Chachamim of each community. The Rambam says that Minhag can only be started by Chachamim. It's somewhat deba- that might be debated by some, but the Rambam says it's the Chachamim. But what is the difference between a Minhag and a Halacha? <clears throat> that a minhag was local Basically minhagim That are different From community to community Means that the chachamim Of that particular community The chachamim of Germany Poland Whatever Told their their Constituents Don't eat rice on Pesach Because of this concern And that concern And they accepted it But that's not binding On any other community That was what those chachamim said It's binding on the people Who live in that community Okay So the Rambam explains that But what happens is Anything up to the times of the Talmud That was binding on everybody When all the Chachamim were together And all the rabbis were working together And they still had a living Torah basically Up till then it was still fluid You could still innovate new halachot They could derive new solutions to halachot They could overturn precedents of prior generations Which they did, by the way If you, you know, one who learns the Sort of the history of halacha I'm not talking about it from an academic perspective Even in the Gemara will tell you that, you know, even in the Mishnayot, you know, certain Halachot that, that were practiced in Bayat Rishon, the Sanhedrin came in Bayat Shani and said, we read the Psukim differently, we interpret it differently, we understand the Salachah differently, we derive it differently, we have a different idea, and therefore we, every Sanhedrin has the power and the authority to rule on the Halachah according to their understanding. So if they said even, yeah, that's very nice that the that the Chachamim of 200 years ago thought this, but we learned this also. And you have to go by our understanding. Our understanding is this. We can't just accept it, you know, just accept what the previous generation said. We have to understand it and we have to understand it on our own. That's why there's a very famous story about Rabbi Eliezer that... Uh, you've probably heard at one point or another, it's in, it's in the G'mon Masechet B'Av that Rabbi Eliezer was arguing with all the other rabbis and Rabbi Eliezer said, if I'm right, let the river flow backwards, let the tree move, let the balls fall down, all these things, let a voice come from heaven that says that I'm right and all those things happened and yet they still voted against him. Right? Even though obviously Hashem is saying Rabbi Eliezer is right. What's the idea of that of that story? It might be true that he's right in some kind of Objective sense In the eyes of Hashem But Hashem gave us The responsibility To do what We understand Is correct And if he couldn't Convince the other Chachamim Of his idea Then they didn't understand That they couldn't Just accept it As an axiom Because he said it Because they heard That God said it They have to understand that. That's what it means It's not in heaven It's something That we have to understand So that's how the Torah Was a living Torah Okay Now we don't have that Because it became Frozen in time At the time of the, uh, at the time of the sealing of the, of the Talmud So it's not alive anymore Okay So what is the it's, it's, We can only interpret We have to accept everything in the Gemara And we can only interpret and apply The laws that were established in the Gemara That's as far as we can go We can never innovate beyond that We can never change So how does this affect us somewhat Let me give an example of how this affects us so I'll give, I gave you some instances of zerot that the rabbis made different decrees on not riding a horse on Shabbat, not t- taking medicine, things like that, where they made it based on concerns that were having, having the repetition of the Amidah, uh, based on the concerns that they had that were, um, uh, you know, that were uh, no longer applied today. And maybe if a Sanhedrin were uh, around today, they would decide differently, right? But those are kind of quaint because they don't affect our life so much. But let me give you an example. Of something that really does affect the lives of many people. So we have in uh, in Hilchot Nidah, for example, for women, we have a, a very long period of waiting time between uh, you know every month that a woman has to wait because she has to wait seven clean days before she goes to the mikveh, right? So for some women, it's very problematic when they're trying to get pregnant, and you have something that's called halachic infertility. It's a it's a phenomenon, which basically that they are, that these women are ovulating and are able to get pregnant exactly during those Shivanikim. Now those Shivanikim are not biblically required. They were something that the Chachamim instituted a practice that the women took upon themselves to be stringent and then the Chachamim kind of like instituted as the practice, right? So to this day, that's like considered, you know, a foundation of halakha that that they have to have the seven clean days, even though it's not biblically required. In most cases, it's not required by the Torah, but this is a stringency that was accepted universally. The problem is that the stringency impacts people in ways that maybe the Chachamim at that time wouldn't have uh, known but now we know because we have more understanding of how the female body works and more understanding of anatomy and ph- physiology and the details. So, you know, uh, uh, Sanhedrin today might look for ways to uh, mitigate that or change that. Or um, I'm not talking about ch- just, they can't obviously just change uh, laws of the Torah, but the idea is that they, especially rabbinic laws or stringencies, they could modify them to. Uh, to be um, Or like for example The fact that we have like There's something funny That we don't have a shofar on, on, on Rosh Hashanah That falls on Shabbat Which it falls on this year And we don't have Lulav and Etrog Which falls on Shabbat Right Now Many people don't carry Even when there's an iruv But nowadays People carry everything In most cities Religious Religious people Carry on Shabbat Not everybody But many people do Right So it's just funny That they carry everything But not a Lulav You're not allowed to do that you're not allowed to carry shofar. It's like, but we carry everything. Why, why can't we carry it? So people don't understand what kind of halakha is that. You can't blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, uh, on Shabbat because you might carry it. What do you mean I carry it? I carry everything else. Why can't I carry that? Right? So it's like, that's another thing where that kind of halakha could be updated. Or, I'll give you a really good example. In the times of the Gemara, this was something that I, uh, that uh, really was eye-opening for me when I was in graduate school, I remember, That, you know, until around like maybe 150 years ago, I guess maybe now it's a little bit longer. I don't remember exactly the dates, but it was widely believed that deaf people, people who are deaf, were mentally retarded, you know, or what they call, like what's the word that they use now? They don't use that word anymore, mentally challenged, whatever, that they were, you know, that they were similar to people with developmental disability. They couldn't understand, they couldn't learn. That was widely believed. And so deaf people were treated the same as people who had like, you know, learn, severe learning disabilities or mental retardation. That's what because there was no way to communicate with them. So the assumption was they didn't know. Now in reality, they couldn't learn language because they couldn't hear. So they couldn't communicate in language, and they didn't really have ways to learn to teach them to educate them and so on. And to to and so they remained isolated. And of course, if you remain isolated from everything around you, because there's no way to get any. Uh, education, so then you're gonna seem like you're, you're not but function- not very high functioning, right? Makes sense. That's what they thought for ever until, you know, maybe in the 1800s that they started to educate the deaf and realize that actually, no, you can educate. Their, their intelligence is perfectly fine. They're actually perfectly fine. They have perfectly fine intellect. It's just that there's some brilliant people who are deaf, it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's just that they didn't have a way to hear, so they didn't have a way to learn language. So they didn't have a way to communicate or to learn content or material, because even when you, if a person can see, but they can't hear, they can't learn how to read because they can't learn language, right? If they can't hear at all, I'm saying, right? So, uh, so in the times of the Gemara, they thought that a person who was a deaf mute had no tat, was mentally, had no mental capacity. And so there's a lot of halachot that say, oh, a deaf person can't do this in halacha, can't be a shaliach, can't be a this, can't, can't do many, many things, can't, you know, issue a divorce to his wife. Can't. There are many, many things that a person who is a deaf mute is considered like the same as a person who is what's called a shoteh, a person who has no mental capacity. Like if you see a person who's really like, has no mental capacity They're not obligated in mitzvot Because they're not able You can't give them The responsibility of mitzvot Just like even in America The legal system Wouldn't expect the same thing From a person who is Mentally Has low mental capacity Right It's It wouldn't be fair They don't have full uh, You know they, they don't, They're don't. they not making a full choice So that's what they thought About deaf people Okay um, There was one opinion In the Gemara That disagreed And said no If the deaf person Can write something Can communicate And write something And it's okay Right But generally The halacha was Accepted that no they can't We never consider them to be a uh, A person who has mental capacity That was what the Gemara says Now nowadays we know that that's not true Basically You know but they were basing it on what they understood At the time and I and the reason why I feel comfortable saying this because Rabbi Ben Chaim also said this <coughs> He said today if there was this Andhadrin, Of course it would say that uh, Deaf people have da'at they have Mental capacity there's it was just that We they didn't have a way to reach them so they concluded Otherwise but actually they do yeah The Sanhedrin was like the national Bet Din, the top Bet Din. So they're in, they're responsible for basically defining. They're like the Supreme Court, but they also are like the legislature. Meaning any Gzerot Takanot, any laws, rabbinic laws, would be passed by them. But also they're the chief interpreters of the law. So whatever interpretation they give becomes the interpretation. So if you have certain halachot that are were based on circumstances of the time, or were based on an understanding that was incomplete, and now it's more complete. Okay, so you could, so a sanhedrin would be able to revise these halachot or reinterpret them, reapply them. Uh, there are halachot that might be related also to, uh, you know, let's say a woman not being able to be a witness. That might have to do with, I'm not sure. I'm giving an example. Might have to do with the fact that women were not really involved in uh, public life. You know, now now they are. Maybe that would be different. You know, that's something that they derived from the psukim. They could derive something different from the psukim. So with the Sanhedrin, you have a lot of leeway in terms of interpreting halakha. It's very flexible. What we have now, we don't have. So, So instead of having a living Torah that the interpretations and the understanding is evolving and is interacting with our understanding of the world and is progressing and... And that new generations are revealing New ideas in Chidushim and, and developing new interpretations And new applications We're stuck in the past just interpreting uh, The way that things were back then Even the, the fact that we study texts And this is why, by the way The Chachamim were against the idea of writing The Torah Sheva Alpeh They don't want to write the Oral Torah Because what happens is that we're reading, when we read the Mishnah, let's say, we're reading a book that was written 2,000 years ago. So every example that it gives you is from 2,000 years ago. So half the time you're spending, oh, what did they, how did they eat back then? How did they, what kind of tools did they use back then? What did they do back then? Because you're trying to understand what they were talking about. Because so much of it is the context of your time. A teacher doesn't give examples from 2,000 years ago. If I want to give you an example of something to illustrate something, give you an example from now. I'm not going to say give you an example from 2,000 years ago. So it was the, the Mishnah was cool and contemporary in its time. It was like, wow, the halacha is so up to date and it's speaking about stuff that we we totally know what it's talking about. It's speaking our language. Now, we don't understand a lot of the examples that the, the, the Talmud gives because it's talking from 2,000 years ago. It was meant to be a living tradition and it was meant to be that the door of interpretation and chidush and novel interpretation, new ideas new halachot, new application, was never supposed to be closed. It was supposed to be that every generation continued that process and combined and integrated whatever new ideas uh, developed over time. Instead, it's frozen in place. So this is one of the things that uh, bringing the Sanhedrin, bringing the halacha back to life would be one of the major changes that would happen in the time of the Mashiach, that we would again have a unified uh, body of chachamim that had that authority to be able to revisit all the issues. Do you need a second day of Yom Tov today in in Chutz Haaretz? Do you need a second day of Yom Tov? Nowadays, everything is digital and everyone knows exactly what day every Yom Tov is and exactly what time it is and exactly when the Rosh Chodesh was. You really don't need it. Even in the times of the Gemara, they said they didn't need it, by the way. People think that's a modern problem. The Gemara says in Masachet Bitzah in the beginning, why do we keep two days of Yom Tov? Everybody knows what the Rosh Chodesh is nowadays. We have a fixed calendar. They had a fixed calendar already from the times of the Gemara. It's not new. It's not new. So why, why do we need this? Oh, because maybe you'll be, you'll be in a situation where you won't have access to it, and you'll, you'll be in a place where people don't know it, and then you won't know, and so it's better to just keep the Minhaq. It's a Minhaq. Do you think nowadays it's really relevant that everything is digital and everyone in the world knows exactly what time it is down to the second, other than the millisecond, right? So it's it's not really. So what what would a Sanhedrin say today about that? So it would bring halakha up to date with with modern life. It would deepen the understanding of halakha, but it would also make the application of halakha, instead of always making excuses. Oh well, this was because in the old days they did this and that. It would be something that really spoke to. The life of today Which it was supposed to In every generation How do we know that? Because in the Mishnah and the Yibar, They're talking about Their situation If those rabbis Were alive today They would be talking about Our situation Not the situation That was from 2,000 years ago Ah, Very yeah. excellent question I'm so glad you asked that Because I was afraid Whether to bring that topic up Or not Because I thought I would lose everybody But since you brought it up I'm going to address it So Here's the story. What so the issue is like this: If you, uh, in order to have what what they used to have was they had such a thing called tzemicha. Today, rabbis today, this this that they have, wh- whatever quality it is, I'm not getting into that. Um, right, whatever wherever they got it from, with correspondence course, or they went to school for a few years, or some rabbis went to school for many years. Depends on the rabbi, right? What their smicha is called yore, yore yore. Yore means that your teacher gives you permission to answer halachic questions. They consider you qualified to answer halachic questions either in certain areas or in all areas, depending on the person. Like Rabbi ben Chaim has in all areas, obviously. Some rabbis only have certain areas. Most rabbis only have yore yore, which means they're allowed to make rulings on, like basically, kashrut, shabbat, the practical, practical halachot of life, not on, let's say, divorce, marriage, dinema uh, monot, uh, which is like civil cases to be a dayan of a, a judge of a bet. There's differences. But all of this is what's called hetero hora'ah. means that you got permission to be a halachic authority. That's all that it means. You got permission because it's against uh, respect for your teacher to start issuing rulings in halacha without permission. That's the reason. That's the only reason why we have semicha. Now, what it ends up functioning as, historically, Is what we call quality control, basically. Because if everybody could just set up and be like, "I'm a doctor," you know, and you didn't have to be licensed and you didn't have to be go to school, it would be pretty dangerous. People would start doing like, you know, these these people start doing like dental procedures out of the back of their van or whatever. People do. You don't want that, right? And so you have a quality control. You say that uh, you have to have certain certification, has to be recognized in order to say that I'm rabbi. Like for instance, in the United States, you cannot say you're a psychologist unless you have a doctorate, if if you are a clinical psychologist. If you're a school psychologist, you could say you're with a master's, okay? It depends on what kind of psychologist, but you need some kind of qualification to say psychologist. You need some graduate school level, master's or PhD. You can say I'm a psychotherapist if you dropped out of high school. It doesn't matter. A psychotherapist doesn't mean anything, okay? If somebody writes psychotherapist, they could be someone who passed the sixth grade, or maybe not. It doesn't mean anything. So a lot of rabbis, which I don't know even with it, say I'm a psychotherapist also. So both of those things, you have to question, you don't know. Anyway, um, but that's the rabbis of today. In the olden days, they had a status which was, they didn't call them rav like they do today, they called them rabbi. Rabbi means somebody who has real smicha. What do we mean real smicha? We mean that when Moshe Rabbeinu transferred the authority to Yeshua, he leans his hands on Yeshua and he says, I'm giving you the special authority. That chain continued all the way down until the latter part of the times of the Mishnah, and even the very beginning of the Gemara, there were still rabbis who had the real smicha, meaning that they were part of an unbroken linked tradition going all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu, that somebody gave smicha to somebody, who gave it to somebody, and the Rambam actually traces the entire, in the beginning of the Mishnah he traces the entire chain, all the way from Moshe Rabbeinu, all the way down to the end of it. And uh, it had to be done only in Eretz Israel. Once they came to Eretz so like that was one of the problems that only the rabbis in Eretz Israel were called Ribi. And then, and then eventually, with because of persecutions, the Romans like actively tried to prevent them from doing it, to undermine them, destroy it, and they succeeded eventually in breaking it. Now there were some attempts to revitalize it. The Harav Yosef Karo, very famously in his time, they tried to reinstitute smicha Okay, so that brings us to the question. So. Here's the deal. Assuming, okay, assuming that in the times of Mashiach, we need to reconstitute the Sanhedrin, so we need to reconstitute the Smicha. How are you going to do it? The chain is broken. You can't put back together the chain. So what do you do? Ah, there's one solution. Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu Navi is going to come. And Eliyahu Navi, of course, is one of the people in the chain of Smicha. He passed it to Elisha, right? He's, he's one of the people. He's going to come back. Eliyahu Anubi has it and he'll be able to give smicha to the Hosanna that would be an easy solution, right? The Rambam has a very innovative solution to this problem. He says, I think, right? I'm not saying I think. I'm saying he says, I think. He says, I believe, I think that if all of the Chachmei Israel agreed on one person that they were a qualified authority, that would con- constitute a smicha. Because what does really smicha mean? It means that you are indisputably recognized as an authority because you've got you're part of this chain. So if all of the chachmei Yisrael agreed on one person that this person has a smicha, that would give them the smicha. Okay, and then you could start reconstituting it. So that's what they tried to do in the times of the Bet Yosef. So they said, "Oh, all of the chachamim in Israel." all of the Chachami in Israel were all going to say that the Rav Yosef Karo is definitely uh, authority and this one's going to say this one is and then we're going to have smicha So there were some a group of rabbis at that time who actually had Ribi in front of their name and it said uh, you know uh, uh, that he had Semichah, uh, you know a Musmach whatever they put that on their title. But the only problem was that they didn't actually have all the rabbis because there were some Chachami that were first of all against the whole idea of doing it and second of all like questioned it and all that so they undermined it basically. So they said, first of all, the Rambam said all the Chachamim, not most of the Chachamim, and you only have most of them, not all of them, so it didn't work. Whatever, it fell apart, but they tried. Now, I saw a very interesting explanation. Why did the Rambam come up with this idea? It's not mentioned anywhere in the Gemara, any source, that the, if all the rabbis agree that a certain person has, is an authority, that they, get, they, ought to, they can get Tzmichah. Where did the Rambam get that from? Why did he come up with that? So the answer that I saw in one sefer, which I really like this answer... Can't say it's necessarily correct But I liked it Okay Um, uh, Because there are other answers Given But I like this one a lot He said exactly because of your question That the Rambam Writes When he talks about the Mashiach Some people say Eliyahu Hanavi is going to come back Some people Meaning He's not 100% sure That that's literal That Eliyahu Hanavi is going to come back Or it might just be a drash It might just be a agadot That are not literal So he's like Because I'm not sure If Eliyahu Hanavi is going to come back Right? So I said, that's why he needed another solution for the problem of the smicha, Because let's say Eliyahu Hanavi doesn't come back, then what are you going to do? right? So exactly because of that problem, there had to be another out, a way to reconstitute smicha. Well, the Rambam says that, um, that there are some people who say that that's going to happen, but it's not an established part of the tradition. It's mentioned in different Midrashim. It's not so clear that he's going to come. And the Eliyahu Hanavi that's mentioned, when it says, here he says... Um, uh, he, he talks about. He says, "Yesh men a shomrim um, shekodem biyata melecham shechiv eli Yahoo." Okay, he's like some some of the chachamim say Eliyahu is going to come, right? He says, "V'chol elu advim chayot lo adam All these things, nobody's going to know how they actually happen until they happen. And uh, and he says, Shidvarim it's even kept them hidden. And the rabbis also don't have a clear tradition on it. They were just analyzing what they thought based on the uh, based on the, uh, you know, what they can understand from the nivuot and so on. But he doesn't think that it was a clear tradition. He thinks it was their thoughts about it that they thought that probably Eliyahu was going to come. He doesn't know if it's literal or not. It could just be some Navi is going to come. He, he didn't know. So he didn't want to... The main thing in the Rambam is that uh, he doesn't... It, it's Once you start getting these ideas in your head, it can sometimes be very dangerous. Because you'll be like, oh... This, because he says it sounds like there's going to be, he says, It sounds like there's going to be a war of Gog and Magog, right? He makes everything very like, eh, it sounds like it, and maybe, and before that, there's going to be a Navi that's going to occur. He's making it very vague. It sounds like that. Why? Because people get these very fixed ideas, and then constantly people are like, oh my god, this is Gog and Magog right now. This is what's happening right now. Oh my. How many times did you hear that? World War I, World War Two, 9-11. Constantly, oh, this is Gogumagog. Every, oh, the Islamic State, the ISIS thing. Oh, it's Gogumagog. Everything is Gogumagog all the time. Now Iran. Right, Russia, Ukraine. Every, every war, I can tell you as somebody who's only a little bit older than you, not heard a few more of these things, right? Always, they're saying it's Gogumagog. It's Gogumagog. That's what happens when you have these Fixed template that you're looking for Some kind of you know And then oh this guy must be Eliyahu Anavi And this might be the Mashiach And that's what happens Messianic movements happen Because they're looking to fit The picture into a certain template Right So if you look at like Shabtai Tzvi For example false messiah What was going on at that time because he was in the right place at the right time, and people thought, "Oh, this is what's predicted in this nevuah. This is this," and so therefore, Natan, his like uh, representative, his PR man, Natan he was the Eliyahu Navi, and obviously, you know, he was the Mashiach. So, or in the case of Lavdil you know, you have—I'm not sure how much of Lavdil but you know, like uh, in, in the case of JC, right? He had, oh, John the Baptist is obviously Eliyahu Navi, and this one, is this like they take all of these different puzzle pieces and they try to fit it in. Right? So the Rambam is saying all of these things we don't really know so we can't be sitting and looking. To, he's like, He says the main thing is, right? The main thing is that when we see that the Jewish people are returning to Torah and we see that the Jewish people are being they're you know, becoming strong in the Tuan, the Derech Hashem and a leader rises up who does all the things he's supposed to do, then everything is gonna take its course. We don't have to in, in advance decide, oh, this guy is must be Eliyahu Avi, and this one must be Mashiach, oh and this must be Gogumagog. Because that's what happens when you think that it's like a sort of a fixed template that everything's gonna fit in, instead of a progression that's going to occur naturally and, and organically from the Jewish people. Okay, and it becomes dangerous because then without because people want a magical solution. They want a magical solution. They want it to just be that the mashiach is going to show up tomorrow. Oh, and this guy is going to be the eliyahu, and this one's going to be this, and Ukraine and Russia is go go mago. They want everything to just fit into the template like that without change coming from Am Yisrael, from us, from the real teshuvah. And that's what the Rambam is always trying to push away from. Don't have these fixed ideas and start trying to put labels on people. Right, tagging this one is this one. This one, this one, engage in the process of teshuvah, and learning Torah, strengthening in in, in shmirat mitzvot, strengthening in, in in unity of Am Yisrael, and these things will happen. And however, Hakadosh Baruch Hu for it to happen, then in retrospect we're going to understand that it happened that way exactly as the Navi said. Just like you know uh, everything that it says in the Torah happened, it, all the klalot happened in the in you know in the, the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, all the curses, all the curses happened in times of the Holocaust. You know? Like, in retrospect, you can see that the nivuot came true. But you can't really predict in advance exactly what things are going to look like based on the nivuot. And it's a bad practice to do it. You know? So that, and that's why the Rambam is being very tentative about all these things. He doesn't want to give you too much concrete to go on. So therefore, you have a halachic solution. If there's no idea to no problem. We have the idea of reconstituting this with all the chachamim agreeing. Now, to me, it would be almost as big a miracle for all of the Jewish rabbis to agree on one thing than it would be for Eliyahu and Avi to come back from the dead. It would probably be a bigger miracle, okay? You can, you can pick which one you think is the bigger miracle. I suspect that they would be almost equal and perhaps the rabbis all agreeing on something would be a bigger miracle than Eliyahu and Avi coming back. But since we don't know for sure, the Rambam says... That, you know, exactly what it means. That When they talk about Ad Shiavo Eliyahu, it could mean that a person is going to come, that is, a, you know, a Navi is going to come. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be exactly Eliyahu. That could be a figure of speech. You know, like the Navi says, oh, David Melech is going to rule over us again. It doesn't mean actually David a-Melech. It means a descendant of David Melech is going to be like David Melech. So because things can be metaphoric and we don't know exactly where the metaphor ends and where the literal is, so he doesn't want to tie you down to the idea that the actually literal Eliyahu V is going to come before the Mashiach. That's all. Yes? Sorry, um, Why are you sorry? Didn't do anything yet. I think he just wants to show you a method. To me it's like it's more like he's trying to show you the right approach. Don't try to fit this into a very specific idea that it's going to be, you know, exactly this person, exactly this war is going to happen in exactly this way, cuz then you start trying to read into things that are going on in the world in some sort of a, you know, as some like the way many people do, and there's like doomsday things, and, and and then you start getting into this messianic fervor, and then you start trying to pick somebody as the must be the Mashiach, and somebody must be this, and it becomes very dangerous. And you get away from the real point, which is the real point of the Yomot the Mashiach is for us to grow in Torah and to become worthy of having uh, a, a Jewish uh, state and a Jewish nation that is, you know, following Torah. That's he doesn't want you to get too much into these details. He says, We don't know, some of these things could be metaphors, some of them could be. Uh, Literal, some of them could be part metaphor and part literal. Some of them could be, you know, described in a way like, he'll say like, for example, like wars, it'll describe as like the heavens, the stars will collapse down. And the thing, he's like, it's a metaphor for, you know, how catastrophic it's going to be, you know, certain things you have to know. And we don't always know exactly what's being described in advance until it actually happens. Then we see that the navi meant this. And then we see the truth of the Nevoah. But if we get too attached to a specific description, then we're always looking for it instead of looking into ourselves and saying, "What can we do to actually bring about the Mashiach coming by becoming better Jews?" We're too busy trying to read the newspaper and find out that it's already happening. You know, that—that's the danger. So uh, like, right like, Gog Magog, like, to- go Magog is in the Navi. It's, it's in the Navi. So the thing is, there are passages in the Navi, in Yeshayahu, in Yecheskel, um, in other places in the Navi here and there in Daniel, but maybe, maybe. But in, in, in some of the Sifrei Tanakh that talk about uh, Mashiach in sometimes very detailed terms, like in Yecheskel, there's a lot of pretty detailed stuff. Uh, sometimes, like in Yeshayahu, more grandiose uh, poetic terms. And uh, it's all based on that, and then you have a lot of stuff from Chazal. Chazal talk about a lot of mishnayot on it. Many places have a lot of midrashim about the Mashiach, what it's going to be like. But whenever you get into that, both nevuot and also midrashim, it's written in a form that it's deliberately, or you know, or by of necessity, it's it's kind of general. It's kind of it's poetic. So. If the rabbis say Eliyahu is going to come back, does that literally mean Eliyahu is going to come back, or that's just a way of saying there's going to be a Navi that's going to come and guide us? You know, and we call him Eliyahu meaning an amazing Navi like Eliyahu You know, so we call him that. You know, so that's where it becomes difficult. So all these things are sourced in Chazal and in uh, and in Navi. The question is, you know, what things do you take literally? Do you interpret it literally that 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 the lion is going, that nature is going to change, and a lion and a sheep are going to become like best friends, are going to play tennis together, or do you say no? It's a metaphor. It means that the the nations that were very militaristic and powerful, and the, and the nations that are weak, are going to get along. They're not going to fight. You know, these are things that we don't know. We don't know exactly. Or, Gog and Magog. Is it talking about an actual physical? Battle. There's going to be World War III. Does it mean social unrest? And it's using a metaphor. We don't know. You know, we don't know. So he's trying to tell you not to get too attached to the literal meaning. Wait to see how it plays out. Meanwhile, do your part to enable the mashiach to go. That's what he wants you to focus on. Yes. Exactly. And there's probably, I think the assumption is that in every generation, potentially, you could have candidates for all of these different positions, so to speak, if, if the nation were ready for that. Like they say straight out, and HaMelech could have been, would have been, should have been Mashiach, and, and he, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't achieve the purpose, he didn't achieve the, uh, uh, you know, the, the goal for his own, you know, his own mistakes. In other cases, they say, well, the generation wasn't worthy. He was great, but his generation wasn't worthy. Um, So yeah, and it also says that in every generation that the Beit Magdash is not rebuilt, it's like it was destroyed again, which suggests that in every generation there was the possibility for it to happen, but the Jewish people didn't rise up and and do what they needed to do. So, 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 I think it's, what? well that's why the Rambam is you know the story with the Masha the man that's driving in the ocean and like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh huh and then he goes to Hashem and he's like why didn't you see me and the was like I sent you the yeah. I sent you helicopter I sent you this I sent you all these no, I... right a right yeah the, the thing is that and, and that's why I like how the Rambam sets it up in a very clear way because he basically says that the Mashiach isn't the person who, like, for example, in Christianity, they believe that somebody was born, the Mashiach. He was born, the Mashiach. He was born, a star was coming, three wise men came, and you know, all those scenes that they put out in the art, right? That's, they, they believe it was destiny. He was born. Like, we believe you don't get the title until you do the job. So the Rambam says, if, the way he says it is, if a person, if a king, rises, were to rise up and... His first thing is If a king rises up Who studies Torah And he does mitzvot Like David Melech, Torah Shebikhtav Torah And he presses and forces you know, Meaning like he I don't think it means That he's a tyrant It means you know, he He pushes the Jewish people To follow the Torah And, and he, he fights the wars of Hashem Meaning he also you know, Defends the Jewish people militarily The person who did all that We assume he's probably the Mashiach Even that is not good enough Right? Then he says, if he succeeds and he defeats all the nations and he builds the Beit HaMikdash and he brings the Jewish people back to Israel, now he's Vada'i. Now he's definitely a Mashiach. So we don't have to worry about missing it because it's going to be pretty obvious. The way that Rambam has it is nice and clear. It's like, look, once he does that, that means that uh, that means the Mashiach is here because we see that he did the job. It's more of a title you earn than a status that you're born with or that you're pre, you know, you can't get uh, pre-approved to be a Mashiach. You have to you, you accomplish the task and then you get the title. That's the way that the says I like it better that way. It makes more sense because that explains how in every generation there could potentially be someone who could do that and they just chose not to or the people chose not to follow in the path, you know? So if every, every generation if there is a shift, Does he know that he No, he wouldn't know and he wouldn't actually be. It would just mean that he has... There are people that have potential to do that in every generation if only they used it. Meaning, but if he didn't use it, he isn't actually the mashiach. What makes you the mashiach is that you did it. That's what. That's where we like. That's where the Christian idea of like Messiah and mashiach gets into our head that we believe like that there's this predestined, primordial mashiach. But really, it's a it's a title that you accomplish when you achieve the goal. So you have to do that first, and then you are the mashiach. Yeah. But they they didn't accomplish bringing all the Jewish people to Eretz Yisrael and building the Beit HaMikdash. That's the problem. Well, there was, yeah, there used to be this joke about this, you know, this poem somebody wrote. I forget. It was a long poem. And it was like about how the Mashiach comes and he goes to the he goes to the shul with the black hat and he's wearing a kippah through God. And they're like, you're not the Mashiach, go away. And then he goes, so he changes to a black hat and then he goes into a kippah through shul and they're like, no, you're not the Mashiach. And then he goes into like, he comes look Ashkenazi to a Sephardic and they're like, you're not the Mashiach because you're not like us. And like, meaning he goes to all the different kinds of Jews and they all say, well, he keeps trying to, you know, fit in and they keep rejecting him. He keeps doing the wrong thing. Like he puts the Ashkenazi garb and he goes in the Sephardic and he puts the Sephardic. And so it's like, and then it says, and then he decided the Jewish people are not ready yet. It's it's a cute poem, but it illustrates something true. That the Jewish people, the fact that we have a feeling that we wouldn't all rally around one great leader or teacher is a defect in us. It's not a defect in whoever that teacher is. If they're there, it's a defect in us that we aren't prepared to do that. So we have to think about that. I think he had universal respect, and there were people who did. You know, there are people... Look, there were always complainers, you know. You read the Torah, there were always complainers. It doesn't mean every single person is going to be like, oh my God, he's amazing, but it means they're on the program. They're going along with the program, you know. There will always be people who will complain, assuming the Rambam is right that, you know, nature will continue, Jews will complain. It's part of nature. We can't change our nature, but they'll be on the program with 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 the agenda well in a way he was cuz he was like meaning it says that if the jews hadn't sinned then the jews hadn't let's say sinned with eglazav and and Chetam Raglim, basically it would have been he would have led them into eretz israel it would have been like all the same level of hashakhapratit and miracles that happened in the midbar would have happened in eretz israel it would have conquered the whole place set up the Beit HaMikdash right away and it would have been like the Mashiach. he would have been basically but he but the jews weren't worthy of it How do we explain it? Well, that, that's just a miracle that will happen. So I, we can't really explain it because we don't, you know, we don't have the, the mecha, you know, the sort of the mechanics of it. The Rambam wrote a whole book, small book. It's like a letter, uh, where he talks about, you know, he talks about this and that, yeah, we believe that that's going to happen, uh, but that we can't know exactly the way it's going to happen or what it's going to be like because it's something that only Hashem knows. He doesn't give us the details of it. He just says it's gonna happen. Yeah, after mashiach comes, it's supposed to happen. Well no, it'll be after. It'll be after. First the mashiach will come, and then the shah yeah, so wait sorry, no question. When did the concept of the mashiach exist? Because we've had two things before, and all of a sudden by the third it's gonna be worth the age of the Oh, I thought you were in the first class we talked about. Oh you, were, oh, you forgot. No. In the Torah itself, it says... In the Torah itself, it says... In the in Sefer Varim we read it on Tisha That you're going to be exiled. And all the klalot are going to come. And all the bad things. You're going to be exiled for a long time. And then, b'acharit yamim. At the end of days, you're going to come back. It doesn't mention specifically the person of Mashiach. But it mentions like the Giulah, The ultimate geula. And so... Uh, the, the, the uh, implication is that there will be a leader leading and, and in a couple of places when he talks about it when Moshe Rabbeinu talks about the prophecies of the future he kind of like alludes to a great leader coming who's going to do that he doesn't get into the details as much but the idea that there's going to be an exile followed by a return so the first Beit HaMikdash and second Beit HaMikdash wasn't really two things the way that we think of it the first Beit HaMikdash was only destroyed for 70 years then the, you know it's like barely anything relatively speaking so how did the only after the no, no there was always an idea of a full ge'ulah. they knew the second Beit HaMikdash wasn't the full ge'ulah. they knew it wasn't meaning they knew they were just hanging on to basically the remnant from the first Beit HaMikdash it wasn't really a, they knew it wasn't the final one because they couldn't they saw that none of the prophecies came true they knew there wasn't a Mashiach they knew that you know the Jews were still scattered most of the Jews most Jews did not come back for Bayachini. Meaning the exile of the Beit Rishon never actually ended. Because the vast majority of Jews, they never came back for Beit Jinn. Only a small fraction. But there is no concept of Mashiach. They had the concept, but the concept is more, and this is where I want to kind of change everyone's concept, okay? No, no, it's important to change everyone's concept. Move away from the idea of the individual person of Mashiach and think about it in terms of Geula, redemption and return, facilitated by this person who is the Mashiach. Right, so they didn't think of it necessarily in in the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. They weren't thinking about a figure of Mashiach. Maybe they were just thinking there's going to be this movement back, and the assumption is someone's going to orchestrate it. Someone's going to be a leader of it. You know, in the later Nivulot, they talk more about this person who's going to come and be a great leader. Right, but the idea is that. Uh, but the the emphasis is on the redemption factor not on the not on the times of Avraham, was there a concept of redemption? Well, he the, he has a concept he has the concept of I I don't think so because he has like the concept of the I don't know how much was revealed to Abraham. I don't know. He definitely knew that his gener, like his descendants would become a nation and would come into eretz israel and establish an Amkadosh. Kadosh. That, that he knew. Did he know that they would be exiled after that and then be brought back? It's never stated anywhere in explicitly in the Nifuot. Even to Yaakov, they say that it kind of is alluded to in some of the things Yaakov says, but it's not explicit. Only in, the, in Moshe Rabbeinu's Nifuot is it talked about directly that there's going to be a leaving and a coming back again. So, you know, that would be, and that would be with the Mashiach. But then the idea specifically of the figure of Mashiach is developed more in the Nivuot of the later Navi. Okay? All right. That's oh yes. Wait, so why doesn't someone like go and start building movies and doubt? like bring a break start building movies? Yeah, um, well well there are many reasons why they wouldn't do that. One is one is that um is that before the Beit Hamikdash is built, the assumption is that there's going to be because the, the way that the what that's described by the Rambam and really by everybody, the Rambam is the one who's the most most you know lays everything out the most clearly. But everybody agrees that the Mashiach is going to come first, which means the the Beit Hamikdash is a pro, is actually I don't not yeah it yeah then no no he's then that shows that he's really the Mashiach because he built it because who built the first Beit Hamikdash Shlomo Amelech meaning first you're the king and you're leading the people according to the way of the Torah and then you build the Beit HaMikdash. David Melech became the king. He was leading the people on the path of Torah and then he brought the Aaron to Yerushalayim. Right? So meaning that's part of the act of the king because he's showing my kingdom, my leadership is only an instrument and a tool to the kingship of Hashem. So I I consolidate my people around the way of Torah, and then I build the Beit Hamikdash because Beit Hamikdash means it's higher than me, right? So that's so you first have a Mashiach, and then he builds the Beit Hamikdash. So we don't have that yet. So it's also a problematic institution, the Beit Hamikdash, because if the Jewish people are not on the level to deserve a Beit Hamikdash, having a Beit Hamikdash is a very damaging thing. And as it was throughout history, throughout all all of history, it was very damaging. Because whatever the worst failings of the Jewish people are end up being expressed in the Bitha Mekdash, like the way that they treat the Bitha Mekdash and relate to it. So we have to make sure that the Jewish people are on the level where they are deserving of the Bitha Mekdash first before we start building it physically. That would be that would be putting the cart before the horse, as they say. I, I heard a kid once asked a rabbi if they're going to be the <laughs> <laughs> I you, uh, Well, probably, you I would assume. Gonna, like, I would assume so? You know, they have this, uh, I, I didn't go to it yet because I think you have to like, um, every time I was in Jerusalem and I wanted to go, most of the time when I was in New Jerusalem, I was like going to Eshel and going home. I wasn't really hanging around New Jerusalem, but when I had time, I wanted to go. They have a, like a simulation where they put you in this thing and you see like a VR thing. Yeah, I really want to see it. I heard that it's really cool. But they said that it shows it like with modern people that have like phones and stuff like that. In the Beit HaMikdash around you, you see like a crowd around you that looks like they want to make it feel real. They don't want to show like these people wearing turbans and whatever. So they show you like modern people with phones taking a picture of the stuff like that. And I assume that, you know, there's one, there's a, it's it's kind of like a, a wild thing, but there was one rabbi who wrote, it was, Rejected by everybody I mean, nobody really accepted this But like There's one rabbi who wrote You know In the times of the Beta HaMikdash Ashlishi The menorah is going to be With electricity Not going to be with oil Because electricity is much better <laughs> He's like right, He's saying To us now it's not But to him Living, let's say Like a hundred years ago When it was like Wow, it's amazing So they're like Oh, of course We would have the best Kind of lighting of electricity So the point is like They didn't that, that opinion wasn't accepted by anybody else but it just shows you like the idea of modern technology being incorporated Shlomo HaMelech the level of technology quote unquote that he inter- in, you know incorporated in the Beit HaMikdash which was much higher than the Mishkan and the level of technology that they had in Bayechini was much higher than uh, you know than what had come before because they had different you know different tools different uh, means of construction and things like that alright so I don't want to keep it one too late have a good have a good